I mean, the Australian return is a lot smaller when it comes down to it, so you can find things. But sometimes, you know, it's hard to always get to the rhythm of knowing where it's going to be and how far along in the return it's going to be. Whereas in the U.S. return, there's more consistency. You're listening to Australia's Tax News Podcast. Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 234 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Klaas for sponsoring this episode. In this episode, Seth Hertz, Tax Director of Expat US Tax, will walk you through the form of a US tax return for individual, the Form 1040, and Seth will also touch on more differences between US and Australian tax. I also ask an American friend about her U.S. tax return. She's not a U.S. tax agent, but she shares some really good insights, which I wanted to share with you. So I have inserted some of her comments. The audio is not great, but hopefully you can still hear her all right. Could we talk about 1040 in the US, do people talk of their individual tax return or do most people say, oh, I still have to do my 1040? Some of them will call it the 1040. Some of them will just say their tax return. And it's, you know, it's probably pretty equal between the two. But if you ask any US adult what a 1040 is, everybody would know. Most people will know, yeah. And so the way it is structured is you have the form 1040. And then, of course, there are other forms that have similar numbers. Are all numbers four digits in the US? Nope. Some are three, some are four. And, and then, some don't have numbers at all. Some are schedules. And so there'll be, well, you do have some schedules that are, that have numbers, you know, schedule one, two, three, four, five, and six. And then also ABC. And then you also have A, B, C, D, E, F. Yeah. But I wanted to ask you about that. Is it that the forms are always sitting at the top? It's probably the better way to think about it is, and this is, it got a lot more complicated two years ago when they changed the format of the U.S. return. There was no schedules one, two, three, four, five, six before the 2018 U.S. return. So the way to think about it is the 1040 is the final answer. Everything feeds into the 1040. All schedules feed into the 1040 in some way, shape, or form. So sometimes the schedules behind one, two, three, four, five, six will feed into one, two, three, four, five, six. Sometimes they will feed directly into the 1040. It's not always, you know, 100% one way or the other, but the 1040 is the final destination for everything that's there. And so you will always find a result on the 1040. And interestingly enough, they've even split the 1040 now so that, you know, page one of the 1040 is mainly informational this stage, it's really the second page, which has almost all of the information that you need. Looking at the first page, it just lists the children, for example, for child tax credits, it lists the address, agent, and then it just summarizes. It lists your total interest, your total dividends, etc., and then the tax you are meant to pay. And you're right. Then The example you're looking at right now actually has the 1040 on one page. Yes. Oftentimes, it's actually split into two. You meant this part as being the second page, the yeah, part where right. you list the wages and tax-exempt interest, etc. Often, et that, is, that is actually split onto a second page rather than on the one just on the same page as the name, address, and social security number. And then most taxpayer would have Schedule 1, where you list your business income, any capital gains or losses. And that's also where you can then see the standard deduction of $3,000 of a capital loss. Right. I mean, the way to think about it is if you have this income that's on Schedule 1, then you will see a Schedule 1. If you don't, you won't. It's like our supplementary it is. business income 
edition form that we it use. Is. I quite like it that the forms and schedules are all quite clearly numbered because the Australian system yeah. doesn't really use numbers so much. I think it would be better if we also use... Line numbers, yeah, item numbers for Australian return. I mean, the Australian return is a lot smaller when it comes down to it, so you can find things. But sometimes, you know, it's hard to always get into the rhythm of knowing where it's going to be and how far along in the return it's going to be. Whereas in the U.S. return, there's more consistency now, the U.S. return is huge. A friend of mine told me that her tax return is 70, 80 pages long. About 160 pages are tax returns. It's quite complicated, actually. Thinking this is very simplistic. Oh. Compared to ours, was, I kid you not, probably 70 pages. We have, we have four countries that we're doing tax returns in. I have a K-1 at back home, which is a partnership. I have, it's just it's a mess. It's massive, and we have so many more schedules underneath. That can be a small number. We've got plenty that are into the three digits easily, so over 100, you know, in in that respect, without too much challenge at all. It happens. Just the way the software works, they print out a lot of statements to back up what goes in. At least now, in more modern times, the IRS has accepted electronic filing for most returns, Whereas before, you can imagine forests that would have been killed in order to do a tax return. Talking about online finding, etc., do you pay your tax in the U.S. still by check, or can you also now pay this? You can pay online. Transfers? You can pay online as well. The difference is that you know the check is unbelievably still you know fairly common as a methodology for using it. The online, there's a fee associated with it. That becomes very annoying for a lot of people. The check doesn't. You oh, know. Really? It's very different to here. Here, Usually the check attracts a fee and online doesn't. <laughs> well, most Australians don't even know what a check is. So uh, it's, and, you know, it's, pretty, it's an anachronism that's, that lives on very strongly in the U.S. One thing I wanted to ask you is, the 1040 seems to be very focused on blindness as a handicap. So it asks you, are you blind? Is your spouse blind, etc.? Which I thought was interesting. Of course, being blind is a major thing. But there are other things that are just as physical handicapped or being deaf or being mentally impaired, etc. There's a whole range of things that could affect your ability to qualify for concessions. I'm just surprised that the U.S. tax return focuses so much on blindness. Do you know why? I don't know the history about why that turned out that way, but the impact is mainly about the standard deduction or the tax-free threshold, because if you are blind, then you have a higher tax-free threshold or standard deduction. Why that hasn't been extended out to other forms of physical disability, you'd have to speak to Congress. So if you can't move your arms or legs and you can't talk, bad luck, you can still see, you don't get... There are other spots in the return where some things like that can can have an impact, but um, not for the standard deduction. The other thing I thought was interesting is it says presidential election campaign. What is that about? Presidential election campaign, yes or no? It's also pretty much a... A bit of an anachronism. Well, I suppose it's not an anachronism anymore. It uh, it still gets used. You have the opportunity to say some portion of the tax dollars that you have paid, you can elect that $3 from what you've paid in taxes throughout the year can go towards presidential election campaign at the federal level. Yeah. Nothing. That's that's what the form is for. That answer is for is for answering that question. Used to be $1. They moved it up to three. So this whole... Tick box line is about $3. Yeah, yeah. 
believe it or not. And it doesn't even require, doesn't mean that you're paying $3 in with the return. It just means for the tax dollars that you've already paid, maybe through withholding or anything else, all you're doing is saying, I elect for some of that to be diverted to presidential election campaign funds. And what you find is that candidates... But whose who's presidential election campaign fund? When you are a registered candidate, and typically once you've become the nominee of one of the two major parties in the U.S., you can either elect to be able to get funding from the U.S. government for your campaign, therefore limited to those funds, or you can elect out, in which case you're going to fund it yourself. And so what your, your $3 is going to those who do elect to take the campaign funding. It's meant to try and be an evening up exercise, but of course, in this day and age, it could end up being fairly Does anybody worthless. take yes? I haven't seen too many take yes in recent times. I think they're a little bit jaded about the political system in the U.S. and don't want to contribute towards it. The first time I filled out the 1040 and I translated it into Australian dollars, I made a very stupid mistake. And I'm just mentioning it in case it ever happens to somebody else. I didn't realize that taxable interest is the total. So I recognized tax-exempt interest, and then I recognized the taxable interest. So I basically double. recognized, doubled it up. And then I did the same with the qualified dividends and the ordinary dividends. Came out with a huge tax liability. Luckily, I recognized it before I sent it off to the client. It is something, I mean, you won't find too many other circumstances where there's a foreign tax return or a non-Australian tax return that it's required to have some knowledge of what you're looking at to be able to pick off information correctly. And uh, and unfortunately, the U.S. return is not always that easy to follow in order to understand it. So I'm not surprised that that mistake was made. I'm sure a lot of people have made that mistake. Oh, that's nice of you. Thank you. Here's the form that I mentioned before, where it says at any time during 2018, did you have a financial interest in a bank account, etc.? And the client said, no, no where is it? Which would be unusual course, if you had they, not had anything Australia, left, left have, over in Australia. Yeah. If they're in the US, if they had nothing left over in Australia, it would be unusual. But the key, if you go back to that, to that form, yes. and this is 7A is, or did you have one? 7B then says, if you're required, or sorry, the second part of 7A is, if yes, are you required to file? And sometimes the answer to that can be no, if you didn't have a lot in there. Ah, yes, that's true. The question 7A is actually two questions. And the first question should basically always be yes, because anybody living in Australia is very highly likely to have an Australian bank account, hence would have to disclose it under 7A. But then the second question of 7A is, are you required to lodge or to file? You In the US, you don't say lodge. In the US, you say file. Correct. File a FinCEN Form 114. That's the one you mentioned before, the FinCEN Form 114. But I think the FinCEN Form 114, you always have to lodge. Nope. Not if your combined total of I what you hold offshore 10, is less than 10,000 US. I see. Okay. And the FBAR? The FinCEN 114 is the official yeah, name of the FBAR. Okay. Uh, so FBAR is, is an old terminology, but everyone still uses it. I see. Okay, good. So the second part of question 7A is about the FBAR. Correct. And you only have to tick yes there if you have more than $10,000. Correct. Good. You need to something. be careful on this because it's the combined balance of all your foreign bank accounts. But what's interesting on my tax return, on our tax return, all of our Australian banks are listed right here yes. and the interest is recorded. Unless she's doing all of her banking in America, 
Unlikely. She's missing. Unlikely. It's a good indication. It shows that the U.S. doesn't hunt the small fish as much as we might think. They do. Or, or it might be that the IRS will still come knocking because there's clearly something missing on this tax return. The IRS can come knocking for a long time. What's the amendment period in the U.S.? I think you can amend it any time if you made a mistake. Seven years to audit you, I believe, from the date it was filed. Okay. So if you file it two years late, they have seven years from that date to audit you. However, I think that goes out the window if they suspect fraud. Yes, then it's indefinite. Then it's indefinite. Yes. But generally, it's seven years. That's a long time. It's a long time. In Australia, it's two or four years. Pretty sure it's seven. Seven years. And Mm. I wouldn't mess with the IRS. They're not friendly like the ATO. Yeah. It's very different. Oh, really? Yeah. So one year, we were late filing our taxes, and they found me. I got a letter in my mailbox in Australia when I was living in Singapore. They didn't have our new address, so my... The old management company that took care of our flat said, oh, you have this letter. Do you want us to scan it? I said, yes, please. And they said, we have noticed you have not filed this. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> no. And how late were you? Two years, probably. Oh, okay. So they, they, a fair amount. It's a fair amount. They found yeah, us, though. Like, it wasn't like you were two days late. No, 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 no. Two there years was an is- issue. There was an issue. We got a bit confused, but it's all sorted now. Were they just friendly but firm or quite pushy and unfriendly or... Was so just- when they call you, you get reference numbers and everything. And so we call. It's very different than talking to the ATO. Yeah. Quite intimidating. So just the tone, just the normal the human, tone, the human tone interaction is, is very different. Very different. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty sure they were making examples of people not filing their FBARs. I'm pretty sure it's some people in, let's say, Hong Kong went to jail because of it. distinguish between short-term and long-term capital gains. Can you offset short-term capital gains or losses with long-term capital losses? They are not siloed from each other. It's just that they qualify for different tax rates. So for instance, I mean, and it's a good point. So in order to get the concessions for both US and Australia, you still have to, if you have long-term gains under either definition, US and Australia, but you have short-term losses, you always have to net the, the short-term losses off the long-term gains before you can then start taking advantage of the concessions. Yes. And that's the and same in both countries. You have to offset any capital losses against any capital gain. It doesn't matter if short-term, long-term. Correct. The difference is, of course, if you have short-term gains and losses and long-term gains and losses, you know, and you offset the short-term losses against the short-term gains and you eliminate the losses, then you know that's how you do it. You still associate the losses with the term first. And so short offsets short, long offsets long. It's only if there's excess losses that you then start looking at the other category. I see, in the US. And actually the same thing would happen in Australia. So you would still offset the short-term losses against the short-term gains. If you then eliminated your losses against short-term gains, you would be able to take the full exclusion of gain. Yeah, because in Australia, you can offset your losses against whichever gain you choose to offset them. Mm. Yes, because we don't distinguish in this offsetting between short-term and long-term. Mm. And then, of course, lines six and seven list the carry forward tax losses. And it's funny, in the US, you say carry over, which basically means carry forward in Australian English. We normally say carry forward. Oh, I see. It's just that 1040 says carry over. Yeah, which is actually new. It used to say carry carry forward. Shows oh, I see. you. you know, I, I'm still using the old terminology. Oh, I see. Okay, so that's a new word. 
if you have capital losses in the US, you can claim them against capital gains in, in Australia. Of course, because we're on a worldwide income concept in both tax returns. Well, I mean, in the end, you're, you're still looking at the losses and gains that are calculated for each jurisdiction, you know, and so you have to calculate the loss and the gain on a transaction, you know, for Australian purposes and, and make sure of what you're, what you're dealing with there, you know, yeah. and going forward. So if you have a foreign asset and it generates a loss, then yeah, you have a loss on the Australian return that can, that can be used to offset capital gains. The fact that it's a foreign asset doesn't change that. Yeah, and the fact is, I mean, both tax returns will pick up all capital losses and all capital gains, no matter where it is in the world. Correct, but the thing you watch out for is, you know, the difference is that when you have an asset that's located in a the different country, is in order to calculate whether there's a gain or a loss in one country, you're dealing with the same currency, so it's quite easy. In the other country, because you're dealing with a different currency, you can end up with a different result. You know, yes. you can end up with gains where there's losses or losses when there's gains, you know, depending on how the exchange rates work. That's a very good point. When you have an asset in the US, for example, you might have made a gain in the US, but it actually resulted, turned into a capital loss in the Australian tax return because the exchange rate moved. That's right. There's other points, you know, obviously when you're dealing with Australia, you know, you deal with assets that you acquired before you arrived in Australia. You might have a concept known as deemed acquisition in Australia, and therefore you're deemed to have purchased it on the date you became a resident. Well, that might be a, way, a completely different cost basis and using a different exchange rate at that time as well. And so you, again, you could have a way different result on the Australian return than you would on the US return. That's a very good point. I think a lot of people forget that. If you own land anywhere in the world, but in this example, if you have a US citizen moving to Australia and they own land in the US... They have a deemed acquisition. That's right. Assuming they're a resident of Australia, you know, yeah. we haven't gone through temporary resident and things like that, but uh, yeah. that's a different category altogether. Yeah. And then if you leave Australia again permanently, so you stop being a resident, you held on to the land the entire time, but you basically have a deemed sale. So you have a deemed acquisition the day you arrive, you have a deemed sale the day you leave, you pay capital gains tax on the difference in value without actually having sold the asset. Although with the deemed with the deemed disposition, you do have the ability to elect yes. out of it, and therefore you won't have to pay anything until the actual sale itself. Yes. And if you're a U.S. resident at the time, it might be only the U.S. that gets to tax it rather than Australia because of the uh, yes. double tax agreement. Good point. You, you are a fountain of knowledge. Hmm. Thank you. At the end, we have a form, how do you say it, 1116 or 11116? The way you normally uh, describe the form numbers is the first two numbers and then the second two numbers. So 1116. Yeah. Like 1040. Yep. Okay. And I can imagine you would spend a lot of time on 1116 because Correct. that's the foreign tax credit form. And so then, of course, that's where the meat is for US citizen clients because then all the Australian tax they paid would be listed here and correct. that would save them from having to pay tax in the US. Correct. That's absolutely correct. Yeah, it's a very, very, very important form. Whereas when you're the other way around, when you're the Australian tax agent preparing an Australian tax return and you already have the US tax return in front of you, then the Form 1116 doesn't affect you at all. You can ignore it. Typically speaking, that's right. What you have to look for then 
is the US tax at the on the second page of form 1040 you then have to look at what US tax they pay because that might That's turn right. into a foreign tax credit in Australia correct okay and this client was very easy because they didn't pay any tax in the US so it was very easy I didn't have to deal with foreign tax credits in the, in Australia everyone sighs a big sigh of relief when they see that it makes things easy yeah so it's the foreign tax credit the hardest in one of Australia. the most complicated issues yeah for each return it can, it can be quite complicated because there's a lot of rules associated with it on both in both tax jurisdictions and I can imagine it, it starts in your head, can easily start being a, a circle. U.S. tax was affected by the Australian tax, and then the Australian tax is affected by the U.S. tax. I can imagine it, it yeah, starts... The way, the way to think about it is you have to start in Australia. You have the American living in Australia. It's It starts there, and that's where the income tax rights largely sit in Australia for the income that's being earned. Then the U.S. takes a, an offset for the or a credit for the for the Australian tax. What Australia is limited to in most circumstances there is going to be based on treaty rates, for which in essence is what the U.S. has to give up in that circumstance. So you're right; you could end up in a, at least certainly in your head, with a big, very big circular loop of saying where does it end and how does the credits work. It is the system does because of the treaty does have an end to it and it's set up that way but you have to start with australia and then and then go from there but it's not going to be easily and readily apparent just by reading the, the forms yeah but you don't pay taxes in the u.s we do oh really despite all the foreign tax credits mm -hmm. that surprises me because i thought australia would have such high tax rates that the foreign tax credits would eat up any tax liability you have in the u.s I would have to go back, but yes, usually every year we have to write a check. Oh, really? I'm pretty sure it's a check. It's funny that you say a check. I'm pretty is sure they America only take still, checks. America is still so based on checks, isn't it? So mm -hmm. IAS only takes checks. There's no BPAY, there's uh, no direct debit. It's not called BPAY or direct debit. There might be. Mm. I don't know. The, our, our accountant does all of this. We just get the summary. But no, ours is not skinny like this. It's thick. And that's pretty generous too, because I believe your first yeah. foreign earned income exclusion. Exclusion, thank you. F E I E. Yes, and I believe it's ninety thousand US. It's I massive. More. It was hundred and two thousand one hundred and twenty seventeen. Okay, for a couple, or is that individual? I think that's individual, but don't quote me on it. So then, what happens if you make more than that? you're taxed at a much higher rate on that leftover income. So the take-home message is basically, if you are a high-income earner, it might be better for you not to claim the foreign income, foreign earned income exclusion. Correct. And to just go with the normal system. Correct. But you'd really have to calculate that out because once you give it up, it's a five-year... I see. So have you given it up? Can you remember? Foreign earned income exclusion. I'm pretty sure we still Use it? it. Okay. Yes. completely different topic but it's now more looking at your role a personal example we lived in New Zealand for a while and we had and the employer had engaged PwC to take care of our taxes so they basically did what you do for US citizens they did for us as Australians living in New Zealand and I was first very 
pleased when I was given this fancy tax agent basically to take care of everything. But what I slowly realized over the years was that they were just focused on the preparation. They had no, they didn't have our interest in mind in terms of that they gave us any advice on how to avoid double taxation or optimize our tax position or anything. It was just a pure preparation of the tax return, making sure that nothing will come back to the employer in terms of tax not being treated the right way. And when I speak to one of my friends, is, is also a US citizen, and they have similar arrangement where the employer pays preparing their taxes. And it was exactly the same feedback. I can't remember. It's one of the big four. And essentially, we prepare it. We do their schedule, and we have to input all the figures, which yeah. pre-populates this and basically... They're not interested in minimizing your tax or making sure you claim all the tax deductions you are. Not at all. We get Mm. no advice if that's what you're asking. Yeah, but you don't realize when you sign up for it. And then later on, I realized they don't actually have our back. No, they don't. Same. We've been using them for, what, 12 years now? Mm. We've been overseas. And there's not personalized advice. And I can imagine that's where your firm comes in because I can imagine that you don't just prepare blindly you actually strategize and because you are not employed by the employer you are employed by the individual facing this tax hence part of your engagement is optimizing their position yeah it's it's a really good summary and a really good point because i did nearly 28 years with the big four accounting firms and you're quite right at the end of the day the reason why they don't do that is because they're not paid to do that by the employer the employer pays what is increasingly a very low fee for doing a tax return. And you'd be surprised at how low those fees might be. And so it's just a focus on pump out this tax return. There is no concern about whether the client, the individual actually could have paid less tax if it was done in a certain way. It's just pumping out the tax return, covering the employer. The employer has said our priority here is to make sure that the individual meets their obligations to file tax returns. It's not to do any individual tax planning unless there's an impact on the employer. That might be one of the few exceptions for that to be the case. With expat U.S. tax, you know, we're being engaged by the individuals. And hence your focus is completely different. The focus is on the individual, and therefore if we see something, we're, you know, we'll say something, you know, the classic expression. It also is something where we, if we're doing some, you know, if we get engaged to, to brief somebody before they make a move, you know, what we're going to be doing is trying to say, okay, in your situation, here's some of the things for you as the individual to think about before you move to the U.S., to Australia, and make sure that you understand what some of the ramifications might be, either with their existing investments or their existing salary and wages, or what they might be planning to do. And that's something that we have the luxury of doing because we're being engaged by the individual rather than by the, the employer. You're right. Welcome back. Seth briefly touched on companies and trusts during our talks, but of course those, especially the prevalent LLCs, limited liability companies, are a huge topic. So we will cover that in more detail in another episode. If you can't wait, please check out episode 37 of the TaxYak podcast by TaxBender with Robin Jacobson. They already share some gruesome details around the taxation of LLCs and many other things. And one other thing, we touched on the child tax credit. 
It currently is 2,000 US dollars per child and it is means tested. But if you fall under the income thresholds, part of it is actually refundable. And just quickly something else, different topic. You probably know that Zero bought Hubdoc a while ago. And from today onwards, Hubdoc is now a free part of any Zero subscription, not just for your practice as it has been so far, but also for your clients on partner or business subscriptions. If you're married to Receipt Bank or you're not on Zero, then this is probably irrelevant. But if you are on Zero and you're not yet married to Receipt Bank, then free Hubdoc is a good option. In the next episode, episode 235, Bob Deutsch of the Tax Institute will share some thoughts about property and tax. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.